So how did that feel? No, I, you guys got to help me out here. How did that feel? It's been 22 months, huh? Apparently, we haven't been allowed to do any of that. You think that could affect us just a little bit? Let me tell you something. I don't think it's just a little bit. I think God created us for that. So if he created us for that, then who's to blame? Yeah. I want you to keep that in mind today because that's what we're missing. We were created for community. And we haven't been able to do any of that. No one person should be blamed for that. I want to challenge us today because the peace of God that God gives us through his son that we celebrate Christmas, the source of peace doesn't come ultimately from each one of us. I can't get peace from my relationship with you, and you sure enough can't get it from me. But we have one source that will give us the ultimate peace, that when we pass from this life, that's all we need is Jesus. So where's your source coming from? of peace. Because if it's not Jesus, then I challenge you as I challenge myself. Then we're looking in the wrong place. We'll never get it there. It's a beautiful reminder about how important it is for us to recognize that the source of peace is never found in one another. You know, I have a story here. It says, when Bertrand Russell was on his deathbed, he asked his wife, Edith Finch, to embrace him, and he said, my love, I've been searching for peace all my life, but I've never found it except in your arms. Sounds like quiet romanticism, but it also surprises those who know him as one of the greatest peacemakers of the 20th century and the Nobel Peace Prize laureate. The great peacemaker said, he has never found peace except in his wife's arms. And if you know Bertrand Russell, you'll know that he had said that to his fourth wife. This was the great disappointment for those who looked up to him as a model atheist to see if human beings can find peace and happiness outside of faith in Christ. Ever since he authored Why I'm Not a Christian which became the Bible of atheism and agnosticism, at least to some extent. Russell also authored a short book, but famous book, The Conquest of Happiness, in which he wrestled philosophically with the issues that make us unhappy and those that do. Peace is one of the most sought-out wisdoms of life. You can search on Amazon for books, and over 50,000 results will come up. The fact is that there are so many books on this subject means peace is a big business. 
we live in a stormy sea of suffering, and everybody wants to reach out for a straw that might keep them afloat. I'm just reading from an article that talks about this, but how important it is for us to recognize that peace can't be attained ultimately by another source other than Jesus. If we believe that, if we believe he is the prince of peace, which we're going to hurry up and find out real quick, then we have to understand that. Because ultimately, our peace doesn't come from another person. It comes from Jesus. Ruth Graham Bell quote, and she made a quote from a woman's perspective about a, a wife to a husband. She said, it is a foolish woman who expects her husband to be her that which only Jesus Christ himself can be, always ready to forgive, totally understanding, unendingly patient, invariably tender and loving, unfailing in every area, anticipating every need and making more than adequate provision. Such expectations to put on a man under an impossible strain. Switch the roles. It's the same thing for a man or a husband for a wife. It's impossible. We will never find the source of ultimate peace from any person or any situation in our lives here today other than Jesus Christ. Even in one Peanuts cartoon, Lucy says to Charlie Brown, I hate everything. I hate everyone. I hate the whole wide world. Charlie says, but I thought you had inner peace. Lucy replies, I do have inner peace, but I still have outer obnoxiousness. I mean, it's just, it's clear. We can't find it in any other source but Jesus Christ. Even the greatest king, human king to live here on earth failed. One of the greatest kings, when you see in 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, in the line of Davidic kings, who was a good king, who was a bad king? Let me just read to you. You can look up, uh, and you can open up your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 18, 1 through 8. I want to share something with you. Because today we're going to talk about Jesus is our shalom. Jesus is our shalom. In 2 Kings 18, 1 through 8, I'm just going to, you can follow with me, but I'm just going to get through it real quick. We're talking about Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, of which we were talking in Isaiah chapter 7. And Ahaz, we talked about the last two weeks. And in verse 3, and he said, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David, his father, had done. David and Solomon. Setting up the temple, the presence of God, to place the attention on God. Not on any one of us, but on God. To place the attention of the Messiah yet to come. The Holy One of Israel, the people of God. But yet he said he did what was right in his eyes. He submitted to the Lord. But here's a key component in verse 4. He said, he removed. I'm going to stop there because I'm going to stop at removed. He removed the high places, and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah, which was a focus of a worship for Baal worship, to focus the attention away from God and on an idol worship, a wooden image. How often are we mis misaligned in our worship that we focus on other things but the God who created us? And what we know today is his name means Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. He removed and he broke in the pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made for until the days of the people of Israel had made offerings to it. For it was called an ashtron. 
And what this was was the bronze serpent in Numbers chapter 21, 4 through 9, where the people of God were disobedient to God, and God had set forth serpents to bite the people of God, and they would die. So then God said, set up a bronze serpent, Moses, so when they look to the bronze serpent, they will no longer die. They will be healed. But what they did is they went beyond that, and they started worshiping this idol, this image, thinking that this would give them some kind of hope and peace and joy for life. It was an image of worship. And then it says he trusted in the Lord, verse 5. Verse 6, it says, for he held fast to the Lord. And he did not depart from following him, but he kept his commandments as the Lord commanded Moses. And then it says, verse 7, and the Lord was with him. That's what God promises to us, Emmanuel, God with us. And what does it say, the result of that, all that, that he was right before God's eyes? He removed the sin, the idolatry. He trusted in the Lord. He held fast. He He did not depart from following God. The Lord was with him, and it says he prospered. Not as though he prospered for the things here on earth, but he prospered because he had peace. And he rebelled against the king of Assyria and would not serve him. So here he was, a man who sought after the Lord. He was a leader that was appointed by God who sought after the Lord. But does that mean that he's perfect? Like the Prince of Peace? No. Because we'll see further in 2 Kings chapter 20, verses 12 through 19, we see that Hezekiah throughout his life, even though he sought the Lord in prayer when he was ill, he sought the Lord when God took down and allowed the king of Assyria to fall. He still failed because then he tried to create an alliance with the king of Babylon. And when he did, he welcomed the king of Babylon into his home and let him see everything. But then in verse 16 of 2 Kings chapter 20, it says, Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord, since you did this. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house, that which your fathers have stored up to this day, shall be carried to Babylon, meaning the 70-year Babylonian captivities yet ahead. Nothing shall be left because of their sin and idolatry and, and unwillingness to submit to God. He said, I will judge you. I am God. I'm the creator, the heavens of the earth, the Elohim. I am God. I will, I will judge as I see fit. And he goes on, he says, verse 18, and some of your own sons who will come from you, whom your father shall be taken away. They shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Meaning they will submit. They will be submissive to another foreign nation because they sinned. Yet they failed to submit to God, but now God says, I'm going to discipline you and put you under another nation. And he called Nebuchadnezzar his servant. Tell God. See, God has it like that. He could do whatever he wants whenever he wants to as he sees fit because he's almighty God. And it tells us that we are not, and we need to submit to the Lord and ask him to work in all of our hearts. And so he goes on and it says, Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. What? Hezekiah, what do you mean it's good? It's good that your grandkids, your kids and your grandkids are going to be in submission to another nation. They're going to be judged by God. That's good. Then it goes on. For he thought, why not, if there will be peace and security in my days? Meaning, I don't care what happens in the future. As long as I'm good, that I'm, I'm good. <laughs> Meaning, security and peace for me, I'm good. In my time, it's good. I don't care about the future. I just care that it's good right now. 
See, what happens is he failed to trust the Lord because he planned to create an alliance with the king of Babylonia only for his sake so that he could be protected from Assyria. And he said it was good because he wanted security and peace. He didn't care about what was going to happen in the future. See, most scholars would say even in his greatest intention, Hezekiah failed to think of others besides his own peace and security. He was a human king that failed. Similarly, as his father did, his father did Ahaz, he failed. He put his trust in Assyria rather than in God. Today, as believers, we, we all fail. I fail, you fail, we all fail. Wouldn't you like someone else to fail too? <laughs> it's like we all fail, but we fail because we defend our own good. Because we only care ultimately about our peace and our security. Rather than seeing that, we have to find it that it has to be only in God through his son. Isaiah 9, 6, 7 reminds us often because this is why the sign was given in chapter 7. Because Ahaz failed, even Hezekiah, as great as he was, failed. But the heaven, God in, his, in the heavens said, I'm sending a son, a divine king who's unlike any other human king. He is going to be God in flesh, and he's going to come, and his, this child is going to be born unto you, my people, but not for your sake, but for my sake. See, God has made this message clear, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, which we talked about in the last couple of weeks. And today we're talking about the Prince of Peace. And then it goes on, of the increase of his government and of the peace that will be no end on the throne of David over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with, with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. I mean, the beauty of this message so as we look back at nine, verse nine, or chapter 9, verse 6, we understand that the Prince of Peace is the last one. But we understand, unlike Hezekiah, Ahaz, or any other human Davidic king, this one was unique, one who was divine, who was sent for a purpose, to save God's people, the creation, from their sin, to deliver them once and for all from sin. But here's what it is, though. Jesus, who we know today as Emmanuel, God with us, who's not just for us, but as we are ultimately for him and for his glory, he, sets, he will set up a thousand-year reign here on earth. And what he does, it's yet to the coming of, of the second coming of Christ when he'll set it up. But these are what, this is what, what the Father was telling through the prophet Isaiah of who this particular person is, the God-man. Just look with me on this for a second, because in chapter 11 of Isaiah, it highlights it really well. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. A branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, meaning he will be on him because he is God and the Holy Spirit will be on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. It's highlighting that the relationship between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit coming together. And then it says, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what he sees, as I see, or decide disputes by what he hears, but with righteousness. That's what a king usually does, set in law and righteousness. 
but he is God. He, he, he's the one who wrote the law. He's the one who created the heavens and the earth. He's the one who will set the disputes aside because it will not be based on what you and I will think or anyone here on earth will think is fair. It's based on his ultimate righteousness, which means to what I was talking about last week. God is not on one side or the other side. He's for his truth. He's for his righteousness. He is for the fact that he is just. That's why in Romans chapter 3, he's the just in what? Yeah, thank you, just in the justifier. He's the one who handles all of that because it's because of him. But here are the conditions. Here are the conditions that are laid out. This is what it's going to look like. Can you imagine? The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. Wow. And the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. They won't look at each other and say, hmm, you look good. Let me just throw you over a fire, and I'm going to eat you up, a little salt and pepper, and you're good to go. No. And a little child shall lead them. <laughs> a little child. And then it says, the cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nurse, nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. Wow. I'm petrified of snakes. I couldn't imagine that. I'd have to talk to Jesus about that one, saying, Jesus, really, is it going to be that easy? Is it going to be that good? Is it going to be that peaceful? And the weaned child shall put his hand on the aider's den, and they shall not hurt or destroy in all of my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord, and the waters cover the sea. That's what it's going to look like. This is the condition. This is where we're going to see the true shalom of God. Although... You, you and I would ask the question, can we still have the shalom of God today? Is it possible? Is it possible that we could have peace amongst God's people? And the Bible seems to allude to that because if we believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sin and the Bible says that when we trust in him, he has called us a child of God and for children of God, we come together in community. And when we come together in community, we're not just individuals for God, but we're corporately together for the sake of the gospel. And what brings us together is the peace and unity of God and the hope of Christ that we can work together. And that's where we find that there can be peace. But in peace, though, here on earth, the condition that's going to be in the millennial kingdom may not be is likened today because we still are living in a world where we're groaning, waiting for the second coming of Christ. And so we have the peace. We have the opportunity to have that certain peace because, however, the peace that needs to ultimately rule over us is the Jesus who rules and reigns in our hearts because it's called the already, not yet, the eschaton of we already have Jesus, but the fullness thereof in the future is yet to come. The millennial kingdom is yet to come. The new heavens and the new earth is yet to come. But we have an opportunity to have shalom peace. And when we have shalom peace, we can be confident. But Jesus is our shalom. He's our peace. And how do we know when he's our peace? I believe it's when we rest in the Lord for his desired outcome, not ours. His desired outcome and not ours. That's where we truly find Peace. John 14, 27, Jesus said this to his disciples, and as he was talking to his disciples, he was praying, he says, peace I leave you, peace I will give you. Not as the world gives, 
do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Because of the fact that the peace doesn't come from each other or from this world, it ultimately comes from Jesus. And the peace that comes, it doesn't come not only from the absence of conflict, but during conflict. Wanting blessing even on those who harm us. Wow. So let me ask you a question. Who's harmed you? Who's hurt you? Do you believe or pray for blessing on that person? See, that's the ultimate challenge in the body of Christ. God's called us to that. I challenge you, if you felt someone has offended you, someone has, I pray that you're praying a blessing on them. Why? Because they're your brother or sister in Christ. And when you and I are attacking one of our brothers or sisters, you ultimately are attacking God. And you can't, you and I can't get away with it. That's why, as I talked last week, we need to pray for God's blessing. Why? Because if not, Satan enters and he has a ball. He has a ball. So peace doesn't come from our situation or our desired outcome. God's desired outcome is that we would be together in peace. Because he says, my peace I leave you, my peace I give you. How did he stamp that approval of peace? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit lives in us. But when we grieve him and quench him, peace is not going to be present. And we're not going to advance the body of Christ forward, nor the kingdom of God. We have to understand peace doesn't come by pursuing revenge and retaliation. If someone has hurt you or I or us, and we are retaliating against that person, even in a passive-aggressive way, as a believer, we're fighting and attacking God. When we retaliate or our pursuit is driven by emotions, in other words, we are emotionally driven, this is where Satan has a ball. That's why we've got to fight on behalf of prayer. That's how we fight through this. Because ultimately, Jesus, God says, revenge is mine, says the Lord. Romans chapter 11. He will deal with it. And I love when in John 16, 32, Jesus, behold, the hour is coming, Jesus said, indeed it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. They scattered. They left Jesus. When the pressure came, when the difficulties came, they left him and abandoned him. They, they left him astray. They said, I don't know who he is. Peter denied him three times. Who's this Jesus? We saw you hanging out with him. I don't know. You got me mixed up with someone else. It's not me. No, no. They abandoned him. And yet, what did Jesus say? How dare you abandon me? How dare you after all these years, three years that I've worked with you and shown you how to live, me and the Father have shown you to to follow this message of repentance for the kingdom of God is at hand and to show you that I am the Messiah, and yet you left me. You abandoned me. You know what Jesus said? I love what Jesus said afterwards. He said, yet I am not alone. I'm not alone. For the Father is with me. (laughs) That's where his source of peace is. Do you know the source of peace for Jesus isn't ultimately in you and I, it's in the Father and the Holy Spirit, the Trinity. Harmonious unity that exists. Do you understand that's what he's calling us in the body, to have that harmonious unity? But our peace needs to be in the source of Jesus, who finds it in the Father. He does nothing without his Father's initiative, the beautiful picture of that harmonious unity. 
That's the beauty of peace. That's why he said to his disciples, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. (laughs) I love it. In the world you may have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. That's the beauty of God. So we need to rely on him. We need to trust in him. We need to know that ultimately our peace is in him. When I was a student at Philadelphia College of Bible that's known as Karen University, I was one year in the Lord, so I was really wet behind the ears. I'm just learning about walking with Christ and learning about submission and struggling in tribulation and struggling trial. Didn't understand why God would humble me. I was learning all about it in class, but now it had to apply to my life. I was going through a really tough time and I walked through a what we called like a, a room where we all hang out, where our mailboxes are, and I came across of a, a man from Africa. We had international students. We started talking, and he said, my brother, how are you doing? I said, I'm really struggling. He goes, okay, and I shared with him my struggle, and then I said, I don't understand why God's making me go through this. He goes, my brother, let me share a story with you. He goes, I'm here as an international student. My wife and my children were in Africa, or when they were in Africa, and I came here as an international student. I said, how many children do you have? He goes, I have four children. I said, oh, so where's your wife in Africa? And he looked at me. He said... I lost my wife in childbirth of our fourth child. She passed after giving our fourth child, having our fourth child. I looked at him, started tearing up. Like an, I felt like the biggest idiot in the whole wide world, sitting there and saying, my problem is nothing. This man stands before me and he lost his wife from the birth of his fourth child. I said, my brother, I am sorry. He goes, you need not to say sorry. He goes, I asked the same question to God. And I said, what did he say to you? He said, I am. That's my name. I owe you no explanation. I am the one who created you. I looked at him, and I just started crying. People were walking by me, looking at me while I was crying. That blew me away. 35, 32 years ago, I still think about that moment. He answered him, I am. That's my name. Don't owe you an explanation. He had to have peace, even though it tore him inside out. It blew me away. I'll tell you, shalom is really a surrendered heart to God, not a result of a satisfied income for our situations. It's a total surrendering to God. Shalom truly is offered amid the conflict, not away from it. We have to go through the conflict. We can't avoid it. My brother in Christ, who I don't know where he is today, if he's in glory or not, has had to work through that conflict. Shalom means it's all well, even though the circumstance is not all well. That's shalom peace. We got to rest in it. Because he is the I am God. He owes no explanation to us. That's where we understand we're the created He's the creator. 
and we must rest in that. Number two, Jesus is our shalom when we rely on the Lord so he can rule our hearts, not us. So he can rule in our hearts, not us. See, Colossians chapter 3, verse 15, as we're familiarized with this verse, it says, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Because of gratitude toward God and everything you have, that's where peace can also be present. And it says, you know, Paul was stating this to the believers to have peace through Christ and only through Christ. And Christ has established this peace between God and man. Therefore, Christ has to rule in our hearts. But what does that mean? I asked that question. It means God will and must rule and reign in our hearts. The, rule, the word rule means control. It means to be in control of someone's activity by making a decision, to be the judge, to decide, to control and rule. So Jesus, when he rules in our hearts, he makes the decisions, he judges. He's the one who you and I need to submit to as believers. When he is working in our hearts and the peace of God is ruling in our hearts, then we are submissive to him. That's what it means. Colossians chapter 3 Verse 12 through, verses 12 through 14 states this, just prior to this verse says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate, hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And even one has a complaint against one another, forgiving one another as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive, because if we choose not to forgive someone, God will choose not to forgive us for that moment. The Bible says if we confess our sin, he is faithful, just, will forgive us of our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, which means we need to confess. Well, what God calls sin, we must call sin. But if we don't want to call it sin and think we have a right and think we don't have to forgive someone, God's saying, that's okay. You can choose not to forgive them, and I can choose not to forgive you for that moment too, until you confess that. Until I confess that. Until we confess that we need Jesus. That's where it comes. Because then it goes on to say, and above all, put this, all these put up on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, peace. That's the beauty. You know, William Penn stated this, right is right even if everyone is against it. And wrong is wrong even if everyone is for it. He said, don't despise that which you don't understand. See, God doesn't call us to understand something and obey him. He calls us to obey, and then he'll show us the understanding. He's called us to obedience. That's where peace comes. That's our shalom, when we rely on the Lord to rule in our hearts. I just, I just, our shalom begins and ends in our heart. Because it doesn't matter what happens, it ultimately is established by God. Look at this. It says Romans 5, 1 and 2, it says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into his grace to which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory, the glory of the one who's to return, the second coming, to set the millennial kingdom up as the king of kings, the prince of peace, the Lord of lords. So our fight is inside more than it is outside. Our fight is inside more than it is outside. How do, why do I say that? James chapter 4, 1 through 3. 
It says, what, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and, can, and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive. Because you ask wrongly, you spend it on your own passions. You know, the word desire there is where we find the word for to long for or lust. It's really what the word means in the Greek is we pursue until we get our way. It's a desire. It could be a great desire. It could be something we're fighting for, something we're fighting for our children, we're fighting for our husbands, we're fighting for our wives, we're fighting for our families, we're fighting for our job, we're fighting. It's a desire. It's a lust. It's wanting something. But at what cost do we do that? And see, the desire becomes a war in our hearts, not in anyone else, but individually becomes in us. And the word covet means to have an intense negative feeling over another's achievements or success. And jealousy and envy. We fight with that all the time. All of us, we're all guilty of that. We battle with jealousy. We battle with envy. We're wrong when we do that. All of us are wrong. And we battle with that. But we covet and we fight. But when we fight, there's no peace. We fight. It's not that we know we do these things, but are we willing to surrender? See, when, when we pursue our own agenda to find peace, we are troubled and mistaken because our agenda will be conflicting with God's agenda. When we look for peace inwardly from ourselves, we will fi- we'll find a fight against the Lord. This is where the war begins, the war against ourselves and God. That's where the war ultimately is. It's not... We're not fighting against flesh and blood. We're fighting within. We're ultimately fighting against God. When we don't like the way things are going on in our lives, we don't like our marriages or our children or our jobs, or we don't like the way situations are happening, our ultimate fight is not against the other person. Our ultimate fight is against God because he's allowing it. And so we have to surrender to the Lord and saying, God, what is your will in my job? What is your will in my family? What is your will in my marriage? What is your will with family members? What is your will for us to do as a church? What is your will? And ultimately, the fight is within us. We don't like what we see in others, I think, sometimes because we don't like what we see in ourselves. When we don't like when someone acts, it's because we're looking at ourselves. I think we're our worst critics. However, we find ways to criticize others which never creates unity and peace within our body. Nobody, whether at work, in your family, in a church, in any organization, it doesn't. There's a quote that says, you will never be criticized by someone who's doing more than you. You'll never be criticized. And you, never, and you will always be criticized by someone who's doing less than you. That's the quote. So... The idea is that how do we learn to work together in the word fight, to engage in a heated dispute without use of weapons? Wow. So what happens is we coordinate and we strategize in a plan to purposely hurt someone, and then it, it can even get heated up, but we do it without weapons. And then we say we can justify it by saying, I'm not using a deadly weapon to hurt anyone. 
But James, in his wisdom, shared something in chapter 3 that's a weapon. And there's a weapon that's clear from chapter 3. It's called the tongue. That's the weapon. I think the fight is in our tongue. Because we can't tame the tongue. It says in chapter 3, it is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Even the quarreling, we, the word quarrel means to make war, be hostile. See, all of this, if, if, if there's a war going on, then we can't say, all of us can't say Christ is ruling in our hearts. We can't say we have inner peace like Lucy said. We can't have that inner peace and still are battling and fighting to get our way. You can't have one or the other. We submit to God because we submit to him because he's our peace, and we ask him to rule in our hearts. And when that we, he rules in our hearts, that's what brings unity together. The fighting and the quarreling and the coveting and desires are individually based, emotionally driven. How can we come together when we find that the only true source is the Prince of Peace. We celebrate God Emmanuel with us, the Prince of Peace, the one who's come to offer peace for all mankind, the one that we celebrate and saying that he came in the form of a babe in such humility. And how do we do that? How do we come together and admit that we're fighting and we're quarreling in our hearts and we're warring in our members rather than putting up a front and saying, no, Christ rules in my heart, when obviously he doesn't. How do we do that so that we could all come together in unity? We first must admit that we are all warring and fighting and quarreling and desiring, coveting. So how do we come together? We come by first submitting to Jesus. The Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Davidic King, the incarnate is not reigning in the church corporately if he's not ruling in our hearts. That's what it comes down to. So Simeon, a righteous and devout man in chapter 2 of Luke, was waiting on the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit revealed to him that he was going to see the Messiah. And before he passed well, he did say, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. According to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory to your Israel, your people. The peace of God reigned in his heart because he was fulfilled in the presence of God. We can only truly find peace when we surrender and submit and allow him to rule in our hearts, not only individually, but corporately. That's where we want to come together. See, it's really this simple. The God, the shalom of God will be demonstrated only through his reign in the hearts of his people. When he rules and controls and decides and judges and we submit because we know our rightful place, our posture, our position in his presence. That's where comes peace. I love in Luke chapter 17, verses 20 to 21, it says, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. 
nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. That's where the rule and reign of Christ starts in the, the kingdom of God. It starts in our hearts. The already not yet, the eschaton of his return. So if Christ is to rule in our hearts, and he is to be the one, he, we need to have peace, and he's our only source. And I believe that we can, we can get there if we're willing to confess, if we're willing to admit our fight, if we're willing to admit our quarrel, if we're, we're willing to admit our, our covetousness and our lusting and desires, and come together to surrender to the Prince of Peace, our shalom. That's where shalom is coming. We can justify everything. We can say, we can even set up retaliation and revenge, but ultimately shalom comes when we surrender to Christ. So if someone's attacking you, let me encourage you. If you came up to me and you said, Pastor, I have this person at work who's been attacking me. They did this to me, that to me, this to me, that to me, this to me, and I'm sitting there for like 20 minutes listening to everything they've done to you. And then I would say, they go, what should I do? I'd say, pray for that person. Pray a blessing on them. Pray a, what? You're crazy. What are you, you losing your mind? Pray a blessing for them. That happened a couple of times in my life. I saw God do some transformational stuff. I saw a man embrace me in three months when I prayed blessing on him. When he accused me, attacked me, and many others who did the same. In a ministry prior, a guy with a stick ready to hit me. I prayed a blessing on him. He embraced me. Because it's emotionally based. It's not biblically based. We've got to come together in unity and peace. That's important for us as the body of Christ. So I want to pray for you today. I want to give you an opportunity to pray that you'll pray a blessing on someone who's hurt you. Because God's called us to that. So as you bow your heads and close your eyes, I want you to think of that person. And if his name is Bruno, pray for blessing. <laughs> you're called to that. Not because it's advantageous for me, but you're called to that. Because your fight is not against flesh and blood. Mine isn't either. Let's pray. Father, thank you. We pray that each one of us, as your people, would submit to you that you will rule and reign in our hearts. We cannot lie to you, Lord. We cannot put up a front and pretend like we say you're ruling in our hearts, and yet we're fighting in our hearts in the war and membering in our heart to try to hurt someone. It's foolishness. So God, please help us to recognize that you are the I am God. You came in the form of Jesus. Jesus, you said it, I am who I am. Ego a me. I am who I am. So Lord, we're grateful that you are who you are. And you keep us together. You're no respecter of a person. You don't stand on one side of a believer versus another. You all call us to the truth. So we pray that you will call us to the truth and bring unity and peace in our midst. And I pray, Lord, that you would bring unity in our hearts and peace in our hearts, that we would walk, because, Lord, 
Ultimately, as John 13, 34, and 35 says, they will know you are disciples if you have love for one another.